Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. It's my pleasure to have Jay McBain back from Forrester. Jay is the principal research lead for Forrester in terms of the channel. Jay, would you mind giving a quick introduction to yourself and what it is you do, who you serve, and then we'll get stuck into the conversation. Thanks for having me and uh, always enjoy uh, the conversations that we have. So I'm Jay McBain. I, I do work for uh, Forrester. I've spent pretty close to 25 years now in the channel. I've had different roles from channel chief, ran a software company for seven years that built channel software around mobility and AI and social, and have had a great chance for the last uh, 18 months or so to uh, write about the channel and uh, to really look at the broader channel. You know, 75% of the world goes indirectly and all 27 industries have pretty complex channels and uh, it's just a very exciting role. So what is it you most love about it, Jay? You know, first of all, I'm a big fan of underdogs and uh, the channel has <laughs> this, uh, you know, redheaded stepchild challenge. <laughs> you know, when, when you're in the boardroom or when you're competing for resources or when you're really trying to drive investments uh, into growing your business. It seems like the channel, you know, is third in line behind, or maybe fourth in line behind, you know, sales and marketing and, and, and other departments. And I think that with such a high percentage of world trade going indirectly, and, you know, with the opportunities that we see emerging, I think it's a great time for channel leaders to jump into the front of the line. I agree. Certainly, it's been my experience of working in sales for the last 30 years and working in and around tech for most of that, that historically, it's been direct sales and marketing that get most of the love and attention and budget. But there's been a sort of quiet trend towards the channel. And what I'm really interested in today's conversation is looking at the channel partners themselves, because I seem to recall you mentioning it last time or in a conversation that the most organizations in the channel can't get past 10 people and the majority of them are smaller than that. Why is that? Yeah, late last year, we saw some pretty amazing, shocking statistics come out. One was uh, 96% of managed service providers were unable to scale past 10 people. 96? 96. Wow. Probably more shocking than that was the entire audience, 70% of them were looking for an exit. And I started to dig in, you know, why could such a large number, especially in technology where everything's changing and, you know, it seems to be the go-to place right now, you know, why is there such? And, you know, the first reason obviously is every business is for sale. If somebody writes a big enough check, you would exit, but that's a pretty shocking number. And the same thing at the same time, you know, we found out that the average margins in managed services, which if you remember 10 or 15 years ago was the holy grail for VARs and resellers. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, those average margins have dropped to 17%. So when you look at the average eight-person firm, that's barely break-even. And the owner principal who's putting in 80, 100, 120 hours a week into this business is barely paying their mortgage. And with the technical skills they have and with the, the customer relationships they have, there should be a better opportunity than just scraping by. Well, that's really interesting because, in fact, I had a meeting only last week with a prospective client for me. They're a 14-person 
resell a business. But all three of the owners are working silly hours. I mean, they're working six days a week. They're working 17 to 20 hour days. And they're really struggling because um, what they've been able to do is grow through referral and working closely with their existing clients. But new business is an absolute nightmare. And because they're, you know, they're principally technical. So that's a thread I'd like to explore in this conversation. But if 70% are looking to be acquired, surely that must send ripples of panic in the buyer network about viability and survival. Yeah, I I don't know if it's reached the level of panic yet, because no one believes that 70% of companies are going away. The second thing is, this is a highly over-distributed market. The barrier to entry to get into be a tech reseller, MSP, VAR, is almost zero. There is no professional certification like a lawyer, doctor, accountant would have. And with 600,000 firms globally, we're probably doubly over-distributed. So some attrition, consolidation, and compression would probably be healthy for this market. And we're seeing four to five M&A activities a day. When you add all that up, there's probably maybe three to 5% turnover and not anything close to 70. So I don't think there's a, a level of panic, but but should be a wake-up call in terms of where are the margin opportunities that are out there for partners and what, they sh- what should they be doing to go find them? Well, this again raises the question because historically, well, certainly in my experience, most of these resellers in tech are uh, very good technicians, but they're not necessarily sales orientated. And what we're seeing increasingly is a shift away from IT in terms of where the spend is being generated, where the influence comes from. And I'm curious on your thoughts as to why that's happening and what partners need to do in order to adapt so that they do work on the high margin business. Because hardware is obviously commoditized and there are all these new entrants. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. And there is a book called The E-Myth that came out a long time ago. And it was explaining the same thing around the channel where you're a technician. When you're a, maybe a teenager, you're, you're fixing your parents' computers and then you fix their friends and neighbors and you get so busy that you bring on a friend to help you and then another friend and then all of a sudden you've backed yourself into a multi-million dollar business and you've really never taken proper sales training, marketing, finance, operations. You're a technician. You solve problems. You fix things. And once your business scales and to the person you were talking to, you could tell them they're one of the 4%. So, you know, they got past 10, they're at 14 people. So right. congratulations there. But what do they do to break free from this um, challenge that they're having and really start to um, scale their business? So that's where a lot of our research at, at Forrester goes into is, you know, not only where the opportunities are, but what are the behaviors and what are the new skills and what did the business model look like? And and then what does the new buyer look like that's spending the money and, and spending larger margins? And, you know, we can definitely uh, do a deep dive into that today. That's exactly where I'd like to go. So in terms of the changing buyer profile, what are you seeing from your research? The biggest change to happen to the channel in 37 years was the new buyer. The channel's gone through all kinds of changes. I mean, you think about 
in the early 80s, what the market looked like with IBM and then Compaq to what it looks like today. It's absolutely a crazy set of changes that they've been through. And they've successfully navigated through all technology changes. And the one that we thought would throw them for a loop, which was a business model change, moving from reselling and value add into managed services, complete subscription business, monthly recurring revenue, they did successfully. But the one thing that uh, has thrown them for a loop is the new buyer. So 65% of all technology spend today and all decisions are happening outside of IT. So line of business executives in marketing, sales, operations, finance, manufacturing, all these different line of business executives are spending two-thirds of all the dollars. And they look more like, almost like a consumer buyer would look in terms of spending 68% of their time researching and almost coming to vendor selection decisions without ever talking to a person. That used to be the thing in the consumer world. Now it's the thing in the B2B world. They also have a real desire to buy direct. 72% of them prefer to buy through a marketplace or some sort of web front end, e-commerce front end from a vendor. So it's starting to look like the end of resale in terms of what their behaviors are. They're finding that once they spend all the time researching and figuring out what the solution to their challenges are, 85% of them are telling us that the people that they engage with at that point, whether it's the partner or the partner sales rep or whoever it is, just isn't specialized enough. They don't know their line of business, whether it's marketing or sales. They don't know their sub-industry. They don't know their you know, any geographic nuances. They don't know their sector, segment, size. They don't understand the multi-level technology stack. So they think that it's almost like buying a car. You've done all the work, you've ch- chosen watched all the videos, done the configuration, done the pricing, you arrive at the dealer and you're back at square one and you have to spend eight hours as they run back and forth with their manager. It's just a broken last mile. And they're starting to report that in the partner world that they're finding the same thing. is It's a broken last mile and uh, they want that to change. So who are the winners in terms of fixing that broken last mile at the moment? It's been interesting and you know, probably the second biggest trend over the last couple of years, I ended up calling them shadow channels at the beginning, but this is now the new normal. Every company in every industry is becoming a tech company. And we know that. Every car company, every hotel, every retail company, that's where the, the future lies and that's where they're being disrupted. So everyone's trying to become a tech company. Every person inside every company is becoming a tech person. So what happened in 2018 is we crossed the chasm. So 51% of the time that line of businesses spend, executives spend, is on tech. So you happen to be a CMO. Well, over half your time now is spent on tech, and your day job has now moved into your night job. And so every company and every person, and what's interesting is every service company in every industry has also become tech because that's where the margins are. That's where the opportunity is. So you mentioned at the beginning, you know, every accountant, every digital agency on the marketing side, every architect, every legal company, all the way down the list, all 27 industries, you've got literally millions of companies that are becoming tech companies. 
there's almost as many accounting and CPA firms in the U.S. as there are VARs and MSPs. What's interesting is 81% of them now do tech services. You read their website, it's hard to differentiate from a traditional reseller. And uh, you know they'll sell you the, the financial software, they'll do the fintech implementation, integration. They're getting into security and continuity and they're getting into compliance. So they're doing the end-to-end tech services because they recognize there's 40 to 75% margins and very, very sticky projects that are attached to it. And that allows them to grow past their commodity business, which in the case of accountants is tax and audit, which is probably their 17% commoditized business. Everyone's flooding in and that's what's creating all these changes. Well, again, because I do quite a bit of work in this space and one of the things I'm conscious of is the MSPs that are really focused on not selling technology. They're focused on being business enablers. They're focused on solving business problems. The ones that are getting engaged at board level with strategy, maybe even taking on a virtual CIO role, those are the ones that seem to do well. And they scaled, you know, I've got a couple of clients that have moved into that space and, you know, they're 20, 30, 40, 50 people. And they're still hampered by the legacy and being a, a support company or whatever. But their margins are certainly significantly better. And the quality of their life and experience at work is substantially better. So I'm curious, in terms of where you see partner organizations needing to develop themselves and their people, where do you see the emphasis that they really need to focus on going forward? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, which is if you get into the boardroom conversation, everything changes. Again, every company in every industry is going through an end-of-life event right now. There is disruption everywhere. And as they have these conversations of how their business is going to survive and thrive over the next two, three, five, ten years, business transformation is synonymous now with digital transformation. Once you get into the digital transformation conversation and break it down to more granular level, you look at every line of business is going to implement a technology stack to be more customer-centric, to be more customer-focused. All of these are going to integrate together. They are going to codify their processes. They're going to automate many of their human-centric tasks. And they're going to spend a lot of time and a lot of money to go do that. Again, if you're in that conversation, you can then approach it top-down. That's harder for some because if you've been in that operational role, and even if you're a virtual CIO and let's say a mid-sized company, you may not be invited in you know, to have those business conversations. So what I usually recommend, just out of interest, is next time you're at your client, drop by reception, look at the guest book, and flip backwards. You know, with 10 lines of business, I you know, would say on average, there's about 50 different companies that are signing in talking tech. And again, it's more than just accountants. Uh, There could be system integrators. There's born in the cloud companies. There's 100,000 ISVs, software companies that uh, are building layers of that stack. There are startups. You've got all kinds of cloud and SaaS ecosystem type of partners, consultants that are in there now. So 
they know the line of business. They understand the sub-industry. They understand the sector they're in. They have these relationships from days gone by. And as a partner, you want to look at who else is in there and start partnering with these people. And again, you're not going to own it. You're not the single throat to choke. You're not the account owner. You're not the trusted advisor, whatever you've tried to do in the past around owning the infrastructure. You're going to be a gig economy player within these projects. You may come in and do the security piece. You may come in and do some of the integration with their hybrid between cloud and private and their servers and whatever it is. There's a number of opportunities that those five people in the room probably don't have the skill sets to do. And that's where you can start digging in. And this is a kind of a grassroots up type of way to start engaging more widely in in your customer that you already already have. Well, another very useful tip, along with looking at the guestbook, which is simple and very practical approach, is to look at your best customers and engage in a conversation with them and ask them, so Jay, tell me, who are your best suppliers, the ones who add the most value to you? Um, Get your customer to introduce you to other suppliers and with the view to having a conversation with them about how you can help develop a better working solution to their problems by collaborating with other organizations that may sell or that definitely sell to the same audience. But you don't necessarily compete, but you may cross over. And when we spoke last time, you talked about having 12 different layers with seven different technology stacks and all this stuff going on. And you know, there might be 12 to 50 people involved in, or 12 to 50 different organizations uh, involved in trying to solve the customer's problem. And by asking the question, who are your best suppliers? Would you introduce us so we can have a conversation with them about how together we might be able to solve more of your problems and do a better job? That certainly opens up the door to have more practical and more commercial conversation. Yeah, and that's, I think, you're leading to the big challenge. I mean, this is easier said than done. We started off by saying that perhaps these technician-run businesses don't have the sales and marketing and finance and operational skills in their own business. But now we're asking them to go and be a sales marketing expert. For example, the CMO or VP of marketing spends more money on tech now than the CIO. You're walking into that room and also in that room is a digital agency that's been calling on that CMO for decades. We're talking back to Mad Men days in the 50s. They've been around a long time. And yes, they're transitioning into be a tech company, but they're coming out with a real strong understanding of the, the funnel, top of funnel activities, progression, lead passing. I mean, they understand the marketing challenge. So they're having the business conversation, which obviously leads to technology solution. But it's much more difficult if you're coming in as a managed service provider without that in-depth knowledge, not just on the line of business, but you know, of the sub-industry that they're in and the legislation, regulation, compliance, the, the sector, the size of customer. I mean, it's a pretty hyper-specialized conversation. And it's not one that you just jump in with your server and networking and security skills and you know, just strike up a speeds and feeds conversation. You're not going to be in that room for long. 
Okay, so let me ask you this then. I mean, do you see an opportunity for organizations who are very business and sales orientated to go out and have those conversations and then prime on the execution by bringing in these resellers and managed service providers that can't scale and don't have the commercial savvy or vocabulary to be able to have those conversations. And then they act as the, uh, the middleman of the conduit. And that's how the reseller business, the partner business will scale. I think that's one big piece of it. And we're already seeing it. If you look at all the uh, M&A merger and acquisitions that are happening, you see a bunch of accountants acquiring MSPs, or you see MSPs acquiring digital agencies or legal companies. Or, you, know, you start to see a lot of this cross-pollination today, understanding yeah. there is a technology element. And that's obviously the delivery of this is the installation, implementation, integration of all these technologies. That being said, though, it starts as a business conversation. So you have to have both abilities to be able to be that consultative seller, to be that person that can have that business conversation, but then have the resources and skills available in your company to go deliver it and earn those 40 to 75% margins that come inside these transformation type projects. Well, I interviewed Mike Michalowicz last week. I don't know if you've come across him. He wrote Profit First, Pumpkin Plan, Clockwork, various other books like that. And it's all his key message is focus on profit, create businesses that can scale. And the way you do that is by not being the doer what you have to do is you have to put processes and systems in place so that you can replicate and you can scale without losing control. And what I'm curious about is whether or not there are technologies out there that are supporting the channel in helping them to be able to do that so they can really focus their attention on that premium end business. Yeah, absolutely. When I said that there's 100,000 ISVs or, or software vendors out there today, many of them were created out of the channel. You don't have to have an army of programmers and software developers and engineers because a lot of the technology today in the major platforms is a no-code, low-code environment, drag and drop. So much of what you're doing, for example, for one customer, building the workflows, installing the business logic, building those processes can be replicated. You can codify that now. And again, there are, when you do the multiplication across all of the lines of business and all of the industries we talked about, you know, there's 35 million opportunities to specialize out there. And there's only 100,000 companies that are doing it. So this is going to grow to a million companies. And this is a big opportunity to the author you just mentioned to drive profit. So if you've done it once and you can codify it, you can then take that code go to GoDaddy and buy a $5 URL, start up, fire up some social media sites, go to Fiverr and get a $5 logo built. And now you've got something that's repeatable and something that's profitable. You spent the money developing it. And now you you can resell that to adjacent type opportunities and maybe spread by geography or spread to other customer types. And then your margins are 80, 90, 
plus percent, which are closer to software margins. So that's one example of profiting or you know, making something that's repeatable and um, that could scale. So you're not always in this people-oriented doer business of which you just mentioned, which is just a linear business on, on how big your bench is. Absolutely. And as you scale, then you start to incur management challenges, recruitment challenges, HR challenges, and it just creates more and more headaches, which is why I guess a lot of that 70% that are looking to acquire eventually say, you know, it's time to hang up the spurs. How can I get out? What I'm also interested in is if we look at the relationship that vendors have with their partners, what are vendors doing to make the lives of their partners better, helping them to drive higher margin? And do you think it's their responsibility to do that? Well, I think it is. And it's their responsibility to offer that and and make that happen because competitively, there are so many choices today. The average managed service provider has 10 major vendors and probably 20 others. So for a total of 30 choices in the marketplace. So if a vendor isn't making the partner experience and the partner journey valuable and profitable, partners are going to go to where the money is. So that's number one. The big thing that we're seeing in the last uh, 18 months or so, and, and right at the end of 2018, we're starting to see several vendors publicly announce, is the move to ecosystems. For 37 years now, we've had these very linear programs. You know, you know them as the pyramid, the gold, silver, bronze program. And what you do is you shove everybody into that pyramid. And on your spreadsheet, you cut it at, you know, three different levels. And you've got this huge long tail of partners. And every quarter and every year, you debate what to do with all these partners. And they're just not that into you. And you spend all this money on trying to convert some of those bronze long tails into silvers. And this has kind of been the motive for, for 37 years. And what modern programs are looking at, and I'm talking, you know, AWS has done this, Microsoft did this in July, IBM's doing this right now, Google does this. What's interesting now is when you look at it from an ecosystem perspective, all of these partners, regardless of their business model and the customers they call on and the geographies they live in, have very specific needs. And by creating specialties, by welcoming everyone and promoting and helping them co-sell and co-market into the marketplace based on their strengths, you're not artificially forcing them into this linear program that they don't fit. So companies recognize now that there might be dozens of business models out there and people who can influence. So there's a bifurcation happening between companies that actually transact, resellers and MSPs, to those that do not. So when I mentioned that you know these buyers, 72% of them want to buy direct, we predict at Forrester, 50% of B2B transactions by 2020 will be on marketplaces. So that takes the resale component out of this. And it completely changes the game in your program on how to motivate, how to incent, how to drive loyalty with partners that don't get a front-end margin, don't get back-end margins like volume rebates and SPIFs and MDF, market development fund type of dollars. You know, it's not a traditional way 
to work with these guys, but you still need to find and recruit them and onboard them and train them and certify them and incent and motivate them and co-sell and co-market. You still need to do all the components. You just don't have a transaction to anchor from to pay for some of that stuff. So it becomes capital dollar conversations and very ugly conversations with the CFO, you know, in terms of spending money that isn't directly linked as discounting or or rebates for others to pure revenue. So the pay for performance pieces is difficult. So t- tell me this then, are you seeing from your research a cultural shift in the vendor's management to adopt that? Or is it really just the ones that are a bit more forward thinking? Yeah, I think we're at the early adopter stage. Uh, I think 2019, we're going to get into early majority. Like I said, starting last year, a company like Riverbed came out with a really interesting program that kind of dumped the whole linear pyramid thing and was built on self-service. It was performance-based, but it was kind of a choose-your-own-adventure. As a partner, you could come in and look at the whole set of 90 opportunities within the program and choose the ones that you really wanted to execute and move the money around a little bit in terms of what you needed to be successful. So if you wanted to do co-marketing and didn't need maybe the training and didn't need some of the other spiffs and rebates, and you could kind of move the money into co-marketing and really build your brand in the marketplace on the back of Riverbed, which is a, a fantastic way to motivate partners. Very interesting. Okay. And if we look at the relationship between the vendor channel and partner managers and the partners themselves, how are you seeing that change in terms of communication, frequency of touch, the quality, the level? Well, I think the frequency is going down. People are working, like you said, 100, 120 hours a week. There's not a lot of time to manage 30 different vendors and talk to their reps every day. And the conversations in the past have been one of the biggest frustrating parts of the channel. Because it's basically the rep calling you, what have you done for me lately? What are you going to do for me this quarter? What deals are you working? I mean, it's almost like having a sales manager call you. And the problem is you have 30 sales managers trying to make their own numbers and report to their own bosses. And it was just a broken process. So what partners are looking for today is much more of a digital automated self-service where they can do all the things they need to do. I talked about the 90 different parts of the program. They can go do all those things without human interaction. What I really want is the quarterly business review of my, let's say, top 10 most strategic vendors. I want to have a business conversation. I want them to understand what I'm doing in my business, where I need help, and where we can partner better. In other words, spend dollars together to go win in the marketplace. Obviously, win win. And that QBR is less of just a looking at spreadsheets and and things like that, and more of a really a business conversation. And that's the evolution of the channel account manager is somebody who can have those conversations, understands the partner's business, and a lot of the tactical things and the day to day stuff, the granular stuff should all be serviced with self-service type of tools. Something you just said has sort of sparked a thought in my head. If partners have 20, 30, 40 different vendors, then they seem to be falling into the trap of being jack of all trades and master of none. 
because they're not specialized enough. They're not focusing on that top 20%. And they're not really building their reputation in a specific niche. And as a result, they're getting very widely spread. Is that a fair assessment? It is. However, in today's world, you know, you can't just be a Dell partner. You can't just be an HP partner or a Microsoft partner. Customers are buying today, on average, six or seven layers of a stack. So if you're going to be a managed service provider, obviously you need to cover the gamut of um, hardware, software, and services you know, necessary to run the infrastructure of a company. And you can't, you know, you can barely do that with uh, one vendor. So that forces you into more. Uh, what gets more complex is I, I mentioned 100,000 different ISVs. In the new world where two-thirds of all dollars are spent outside of IT, those solutions or the stack there is seven layers deep. So it's not just representing, for example, Salesforce or Marketo or Workday or NetSuite, depending on your line of business. You have to then have relationships with other layers of the stack. And there's going to be a vendor management challenge going forward that's going to amplify. It's going to get worse, not better. So it wasn't really about focusing on just one, but I'm thinking if you've got 20 or 30 vendor relationships to manage, because you might have two or three products in a particular area of the stack, and you go in believing that if you present all three of them and let the customer decide, then you've got a lot of complexity there. And what what I'm thinking is that if vendors worked more effectively with their partners to create product and messaging around, let's say, hedge funds or retail or whatever it happens to be, then they could narrow the focus of the reseller or the partner and allow them to become specialists. Because I, I think certainly from talking to a lot of MSPs, they kind of take anybody as a client, whether they are five-man business or a 200-man business. And you're looking at them being very unspecialized. And they're just the tech guy, rather than being the organization that helps hedge funds to grow their business. So uh, I don't know if I'm barking up the wrong tree, but it, it just strikes me that people spend too much of their time trying to please everybody. And in doing that, they please nobody. And that's where they become commoditized. They find themselves up against a lot of competition, price pressure, and their margins get hurt. So they can't recruit, they can't they have to work longer hours, all that kind of stuff. So that was my thought. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I, I think we're delineating here a little bit. So number one, you have to be hyper-specialized. I talked about the five different vectors. You know, you have to get good at certain conversations in, in different lines of business, whatever that may be. You need to get good, not just at the 27 industries, verticals. There's 297 sub-verticals. That's the layer of specialty that the customers are looking for. You need to be good within your geography and understand the regulation, legislation, compliance type of things that are happening. You need to be good within the sector segment and size of the customer. If they have 50 people versus 500, there's a very different set of resources and skills and and, uh, ability to execute. And then finally, you have to be deep into the technology stack that solves that problem. 
So you absolutely 100% have to get not only specialized, but hyper-specialized. That's the road to profit. Second, though, is as you get hyper-specialized, your number of vendors don't go down. And I'm arguing that it actually probably goes up because just something as simple as, I shouldn't say simple, something in the stack like security has seven layers to it. And everything from physical security to edge security and all the way into the core of securing that project may be 10 vendors right there. There's not one end-to-end security vendor that does everything well within that specific solution that you're doing. So your number of vendors, I don't think, is synonymous today with your level of specialization. In that case, how much credence do you put in the idea that different partners should be partnering with other partners and they then sell with and through those other partners and that's how they leverage the long tail. It's been a big change this year and and I'm predicting even a bigger one in 2019. So in July, Microsoft came out with a big partnering with partners program. All of the companies now from AWS and even Dell and IBM HP and others are recognizing that this whole single throat to choke or account owner type of scenario is moving away. There's too many decision makers and it's happening in too decentralized a way. The best thing the channel can do is have their own channel program, have their own partnering processes that uh, it recognizes in their geography, in the place they do business perhaps 50 other influencer companies that can divide and conquer with them. So you understand that you're implementing projects now, not end-to-end, but you're coming in where your skill sets lie. And I call it the gig economy. You're coming in like an Uber driver and you know, making that one piece happen, earning 40 to 75% margins. But instead of thinking, you know, I'm going to go get 100% of that $1,000, Now you're thinking, I'm going to go get 20% of that $10,000. That's the new thinking in the channel is is how do I build a network? And these are very non-traditional companies. I mean, you're not going to knock on the door of your competitor and partner with them. But there's so many different business models. And like I said, everyone is a tech company today or trying to be. Behooves you to go figure out who the local system integrators, consultants, accountants, digital agencies... SaaS ecosystem players, foreign in the cloud players, startups, ISVs. You know, there's a whole network you could build now. And uh, maintaining those relationships is a big part of your sales and marketing strategy. Have you written any research or articles on that particular subject? Yeah, I've, I've kind of written a couple. But it's definitely a place where more research is needed in terms of do partners now need their own channel chief? Do you need somebody to manage the relationships that you have. We're not talking just a simple cup of coffee, you know, here and there and Rolodex and bumping into somebody at the Chamber of Commerce and things. There could be a more sophisticated program that you have to nurture, to motivate, to incent, but you also have to educate and train what these people, what you do and the value you provide. And there could be some co-selling and co-marketing motions that you take. I mean, you may share some SEO or SEM campaigns. You may do a joint email campaign. There could be some joint landing pages, social activity, especially localized 
distributed marketing tactics, all kinds of things you might want to do with these partners. That's more than just a cup of coffee or bumping into somebody at a, an event. Very interesting. Again, I'm not sure whether you'd have an answer to this. It's a slightly off the wall question. But given the propensity for large organizations to stay attached to what they're familiar with, and you only have to look at what happened to Nokia, Polaroid, and various others, um, yeah, Blockbuster, they couldn't let go of their old business model. Is there an opportunity here for forward-thinking partner organizations to collaborate and work more effectively with the mid-market to help them become the new dominant players using technology, having genuinely effective strategic conversations, co-planning and attacking the larger players while they have to stay stuck because they don't have the culture that will allow them to change. This is happening. Big part of this disruption is happening outside of your industry in. You know, there's somebody at Silicon Valley inventing something right now that's going to take you out of business. But it's also within your industry. You know, there's smaller, more nimble players that can grow up and be better in terms of customer experience and really drive things. And you know, I think partners have that ability to, to be able to do that. You know, what you talked about in terms of the larger players, Nokia's, et cetera, is the innovator's dilemma. You've got this business, you've got a cash cow. You almost psychologically do everything in your power. I worked at IBM for 17 years. You invented the thing that almost bankrupted you 13 years later. And you ended up signing agreements with people, creating the richest person on the planet. You did things psychologically to protect that cash cow. And you know, you think of Kodak and companies that actually invented the technology that ended up being their undoing. And you know, can partners come in with a fresh outsider view of things? The answer is yes. But you're not going to do that unless you have access to the boardroom, unless you have access to those very senior players, even the board within the company, to bring in that fresh perspective. That's the business transformation conversation, which obviously turns into the digital transformation and opens up a big opportunity. But if you're in those conversations, that's absolutely gold. This is really interesting. I mean, I read Chris Anderson's book, The Long Tail, about seven or eight years ago. And that sparked a lot of uh, thoughts in my head. The principle of the long tail in the book essentially states that smaller organizations will tend to have very strong technical specialists. And if they then club together, then they can find the weakness in the Goliath's strength. So without being disparaging, you know, IBM is a great company, but they've got 150,000 people, let's say. And if you take Pareto's law, 20% aren't necessarily terribly great. 20% are pretty good. And then you've got the 60% middle layer. And of the 20% either end, you've got 4% who are outstanding, 16% who are excellent. And then at the other end, you've got the other end of the extreme and this isn't slanderous towards IBM, I'm just using them as an example, 4% who can barely breathe unaided and 16% who can't wipe their own bottoms. But if you look at the long tail, if 
partners are really savvy and very rigorous in their recruitment process of other partners that they're going to partner with, then it can be a team made up of that top 4%. And their doers would be made from the top 16% in terms of aptitude and competence. And that then means that small, collaborative, almost piratical organizations can take on the big players and beat them while maintaining very high margins at incredibly low cost. I have one client who, she phoenixed her business and she went up against a major IT services business and took Deutsche Bank from them, having phoenixed the business only three months before. And before she qualified to be on their preferred supplier list, she'd already done three million pounds worth of business with them. And it was by putting in place really rock solid people who were able to ask the right difficult questions and take no guff and actually solve the problem that the large tech services company had been working on for three years and failed at. So I'm curious, again, if you're seeing any of those collaborative partnerships really starting to take off and uh, if you have any tips and advice on how to build one. Right. Uh, you know, I think it's the, we definitely see it. It's definitely the exception. Uh, you know, if you talk about the 1%, mm-hmm. you know, I think you're alluding here to the 1% that, that really get it. And one of the things, and we don't talk about it often, but one of the things that has really limited the channel from growth is the ability to get and recruit those people, the best people. You know, in today's world, if you've got any inkling towards tech, you've got the ability to work for any company on the planet. Remember I said every company's becoming a tech company? Yeah, absolutely. You can go do tech anywhere. And like I mentioned, no matter what role you have, you will be doing tech probably over half your role. So no longer if you're a tech person, do you have to go work for an IBM or a Cisco or a Google or something like that? You go and work anywhere. The second thing though is if you really want to work in the tech industry, You've got companies like Apple and Google and Facebook and you know, all the way down the list that are growing tremendously, adding thousands of people a week. And you know, your opportunity to go work for one of these major labels is huge for your resume and, and your career path. That's what they're competing with, number two. And then number three, you've got you know, these system integrators. Like, for example, Accenture has more employees than IBM, 450,000. They pay very strong six-figure base salaries. And uh, in that world, you're working for a major corporation that has all the vacation plans and everything else. You're not expected on a small team of eight people to work 100, 120 hours a week. It's actually a more relaxed atmosphere for many of those people. And you're almost getting, you know, your competition is everywhere for good people. And that's been one of the, you know, over the last 10 or 20 years, that's been one of the biggest limiting factors of trying to get somebody to come work for your eight or 14 person MSP shop and then get into those conversations and collaboration. And and like you said, go off and attack some larger companies, you know, death of a thousand mosquito bites, you know, type type of thing. That's what, that's what the challenge is. I mean, Silicon Valley has sucked up so much talent and startups have, have, have sucked it up that seem more interesting and exciting, especially to millennials, than going to work for an infrastructure outsourcing service provider. 
And how long are those big tech companies able to hang on to their people? Because, I mean, certainly a lot of the research I've read is that millennials don't like the formality, the structure, um, and they want to be able to make more creative choices. Are they able to hang on to those people, or are they finding that the millennials are now moving out and setting up on their own so that they've got more cho- personal choice? Yeah, there's a huge amount of personal choice. And you know, I think the average tenure, when I looked at it, was 3.1 years. There is a lot of change. I mean, you know, I follow about 16,000 people on LinkedIn. Every day, I get a whole page's worth of people changing jobs. And I always look and see you know, how many times have they jumped where have they jumped from? Where are they jumping to? What are they navigating? But yeah, I mean, it's gone are the days where you're going to spend. And you know, when I started IBM, I thought I was going to be there 30 years and retire, and that was going to be life. I never thought I would do a startup afterwards and and go the route I did. But even though I'm not a millennial, I think I'm taking more of a millennial career path than some of my peers back in the day. Really interesting conversation, Jay. I'm conscious we've hit the hour. If there was a prediction that you were going to make around 2019, 2020, with regard to the partner environment, what would be your number one prediction people should keep an eye out for and prepare for? Number one, I think we're entering the third stage. So we talked about enabling partners and things like that. 20 years ago, people invested into CRM, which is a direct selling methodology and process. 10 years ago, they invested into marketing automation, which really locked down and built a science around marketing. And both of those over 20 years and obviously billions and billions of dollars of investment have been around direct. You know, with such a large percentage of world trade going indirectly, and most companies, like over half their business goes indirectly, I think this is the third stage where people are really going to look at their partner systems, their ecosystems, their alliances, these transacting partners and non-transacting partners and start to build a science around indirect sales. And I think this is one of the most exciting things that are happening. You mentioned hotels right at the top of this conversation. IHG is divesting itself, as far as I understand it, of all of the hotels that they manage directly. And they're putting those out to the franchise network. So you're seeing this happen in pretty much every vertical market. And as more and more businesses become dependent and become tech companies, the way people do business, the way people manage their careers, the way people engage with one another and with other businesses is going to change dramatically. And the one constant is that change. And I think, to my mind, unless organizations really embrace the partnership model and understand how to help their partners make money, and keep them loyal, I think lots of businesses will disappear. If we look at you know, who was on the Fortune 500 and FTSE 350 even 10 or 15 years ago, that's changed massively. But I think that's very likely to change over the next five to eight years as all these things that you've talked about are really coming to pass. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? I think we talked about many. Uh, you know, for partners, emerging tech is really starting to take hold. Things like Internet of Things, automation, AI, you know, we're starting to see some real opportunities in 2019. It's not just pie in the sky, early adopter stuff anymore. Yeah. You know, there's a chance to make money in emerging tech. We talked about marketplaces. 
you know, they have to understand and build a business model that, you know, does not include resale, but obviously includes, uh, you know, all the downstream services. We talked about ecosystems. Partners have to look at the ecosystems as well. If you're going to go talk to the CMO, you're going to have to get better involved in Marketo and Eloqua and HubSpot and Pardot and Acton. And you're going to have to get into the technology ecosystems that spawn the really nice downstream profit opportunities. And then we talked about partnering with partners. Start to look at your wider network, pull off the blinders, look at who's adjacent to you and how do you make each other better, which is the definition of partnership. And you know, how do you expand your customer presence? How do you get better visibility in the marketplace and awareness built? Building a network or an army of partnerships is, is the way that you're going to do that. And uh, you know, I think that's a big thing to think about in 2019. Is it building an army or building special forces units? <laughs> uh, that's true. It, I, I think you're, uh, you know, maybe it's SEAL Team Six. You're setting up a, you know, a, a number of um, different sets of partnerships based on those five vectors that we talked about, you know, to attack your local market. A lot to think about. Jay, thank you so much. Tell me, you mentioned that you'd written a couple of articles on partnering with partners and so on. Where can people find those articles? You can go to forrester.com and uh, just put in my name. All the blogs are there. I also have a jmcbain.com website that I've blogged on as well. So those are the places that uh, I write and heavy, heavy on social media. So I'll post things on Twitter, LinkedIn, and, and Facebook as well, if you want to follow me there. First of all, I just want to say thank you so much for this second conversation that we've had, and I hope it's going to be one of uh, several going forward. Also, I'm very excited to see you in person at the Sander Client Summit in March in Orlando. If any of you want to see Jay live, then go to sandler.com and look up the Sander Client Summit. We have over a thousand of our clients coming. And Jay is keynoting at that event. We're delighted and proud to have him there. Jay, thank you so much. I really appreciate your input and the challenge that you give me every time uh, I speak to you. It forces me to go off and read quite a lot. Thank you so much for having me. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Jay. Take care now. Bye-bye.